Good morning, Advent Hope. It's good to see you here. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you now. We ask that your spirit would be with us. I pray that you would speak through me and that the message would be clear and that it would be a message that would bring each one of us closer to Jesus Christ. This is my prayer in your name. Amen. The message for this morning is entitled, The Seventh Trumpet is Sounding. The Seventh Trumpet is Sounding. The last of the seven trumpets. But before we get to a discussion of the trumpets and what they are, I wanted to talk about a burden that I have for us as a people because when we understand the significance of the seventh trumpet sounding, and I hope that we will after this message today, it strikes me that we as a people living in such a momentous time in earth's history are sound asleep and are living as if Jesus isn't coming for another thousand years. And something needs to happen to wake us up. Now, I'm not talking about people off that we may disagree with theologically. I'm talking about us here today in this room. People who know the truth, but we don't live it. And God is calling us to a higher plane and a deeper experience. Let me read to you from Review and Herald, March 22, 1887. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. And in Maranatha, page 33, we are told, before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. I want to see that day. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. God has given us a message to call people out of churches where the love of this world has supplanted a love for God and for the word of God. Now, I've grown up as a Seventh-day Adventist. I was born into an Adventist family, and I made a decision for my own to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I was baptized at age eight, maybe a little young. But you know... Growing up in this church, going through our schools, and I had many godly teachers, but at the same time, my classmates, they would ask teachers questions like, you know, why are we Seventh-day Adventists? What's the difference between us and other people? And usually, in my Bible classes, far away from here, I'm not pointing any fingers, the only answer that would be given to their searching questions was, well, we all love Jesus and we need to learn to love him more. Now, that's a true statement. 
That is a true statement, and we all need to learn to have a deeper experience with Jesus Christ. But has God given us as a people something more than just what all the other churches know about? Now, here's my conviction. If our young people could catch a vision of what our identity and our mission is as a people in the time in which we live, we would see young people throwing away their CDs, their rock music, emulating movie stars, and wanting to identify themselves with the the most famous sports figures, say Kobe Bryant, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady. Why would we want to be like those guys when God has given us an identity to finish the great controversy here on this earth? Now, I'll have to admit, when I was growing up, I was a huge sportsman. Praise the Lord, he's given me the victory over that. But I'll tell you something. I was a huge Chicago Cubs fan, and subconsciously, this is something I never would have said out loud, I was hoping subconsciously that the Cubs would win the World Series before Jesus came. Now, something is wrong with that picture. Very wrong. And something is wrong when our Adventist young people don't even know what our identity and mission is as a people. If you wonder why young people are leaving our church, it's not because we're not making church entertaining enough. It's because they have no idea they're, why they're a Seventh-day Adventist. They don't see a difference between Adventists and any other Christian denomination. And God has called us to give a message to call people out of other churches who are God-fearing so that they will come into a message where the love of God and a love of the Word of God is supreme. Now, something needs to happen for this revival and reformation to take place in our church. And what we are going to do today is we are going to take a look at our prophetic identity. And when you understand our prophetic identity, you will have no desire to go to the other churches of this world. Now, I'm going to read a couple of quotes. Faith I Live by page 345. When the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. Now, I was talking to my sister, April. She's graduating from academy next weekend. She admitted to me that none of the distinctive Adventist beliefs were taught in her high school Bible class. In fact, an accrediting association came to her her academy and cited the school for not teaching the distinctive Adventist beliefs. When the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. Another quote, page 346 of the same book. Let us give more time to the study of the Bible. We do not understand the word of God as we should. The book of Revelation opens with an injunction to us to understand the instruction that it contains. When we understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. If you wonder why there's not a great revival among us as a people, it's because we don't understand our prophetic identity. Evangelism, page 196. Ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. The prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation should be carefully studied and and in connection with them the words, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Now, I would dare say that Adventists perhaps in times past have made the mistake of getting so bogged down in the details of the horns and the beasts that beholding the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world has been lost sight of. And what I say today is, when you understand prophecy in the context of Jesus Christ, you will have the most complete understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. All Christians understand that Jesus died on the cross, but God has given us a prophetic message to understand what Jesus is doing right now. And when we understand that, we will have Christ to share to the world that others will want. Now, what we are going to do today is we are going to look at the significance of the seventh trumpet sounding. What is the significance of the seventh trumpet sounding? When, what is the message of the seventh trumpet? When did it begin? And how does that affect us as a people? Now, in order to understand these seven trumpets, I'm just going to do a brief run through. I assume that most of you know um, the messages in the seven churches and the seals. The seven churches end with the seventh church, the Laodicean church. We study that upstairs today. Listen to it on audio verse later. Laodicea means a judged people. So you get to God's last church, the seventh church, and you have a judgment hour church. Then, and yet, in the judgment hour church, this is the worst church. So before we start congratulating ourselves that we are a special prophetic people with an amazing message, we need to acknowledge that we're actually the worst church in the Bible, in Revelation. So we end with a judgment hour church that is the worst church, and then you go to the seven seals, and you see that in God's last day church, somehow, out of God's worst church, in the seven seals, the 144,000 emerge. You also see that there must be a judgment. And the fifth seal shows us why there must be a judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And I'm not going to take the time to read all the verses, but here you have souls under the altar who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. These were those who were slain during the first four seals. The people who slew them were pagan and papal Rome. And now we see these people are crying out, figuratively speaking, saying, How long, Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood? Now, here you clearly see that there must be a judgment because God's saints were persecuted. You know, a lot of times we get afraid of the concept of the investigative judgment. But the Bible clearly teaches us that there must be a judgment on those who have persecuted the saints. We want that. To not have a judgment would be a bad thing. So pagan and papal Rome must be judged for how they persecuted the saints. We see that concept in the seven seals. We also see the concept of the 144,000 coming up out of God's last day church. So the question then is, how does God judge Rome? How does God judge pagan and papal Rome? And this is where we get to the seven trumpets. 
The seven trumpets, or a trumpet in particular, denotes the sound of warning or the sound of judgment. And immediately following the message of the seals, in which we see that God will judge and avenge the blood of his saints, we have the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets symbolize God's judgment on Rome. And to give you the big picture first, the first four trumpets are a judgment on Western Rome, which fell in 476 A.D. The fifth and sixth trumpets are a judgment on Eastern Rome, and the seventh trumpet is a judgment on spiritual Rome. Those are the seven trumpets. And you will see that we are prophetically in the seventh trumpet. Now, let's just move through these trumpets very quickly. Um, if you notice the beginning of the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8, you see an angel who has a censer in his hand, which is the prayers of the saints. And the angel takes this censer. Now, the only person who could hold the censer in the sanctuary was the high priest. So this must represent Jesus. This angel takes the censer and casts it into the earth. That's verse 5. This is close of probation language. Now, the seven trumpets prefigure the seven last plagues. The seven trumpets and the seven last plagues have very similar language. And what we have here is close of probation language. And if you look at where we are in the sequence of Revelation, you've had the seven churches, then the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are now here to judge Rome. And when the angel casts the censer into the earth, it's in essence saying that Rome's probation is closing. And so now we see these angels sounding with their trumpets. And I'm not going to go through all the detail or we'd really... um, have a long, interesting um, study. But the first four trumpets, I'll just give you the brief historical detail. The first trumpet, and this is the traditional historicist understanding of Seventh-day Adventists. You can read this in Uriah Smith's book, Daniel and Revelation. The first trumpet was representative of the barbaric tribe of the Visigoths, led by Alaric, and it lasted from 395 to 410. The second trumpet was from 428 to 468. This was the Vandals, led by Genseric. The third trumpet was led by Attila of the Huns, from 451 to 453. And the fourth trumpet was from 476 to 493, led by Odoacer of the Heruli. And 476 A.D., of course, is the year that the Western Roman Empire fell. So pagan Rome, they persecuted the saints. So God strikes back by bringing them down, by using these barbaric tribes to judge them. Now, when you get to the end of the first four trumpets, in verse 13, in the last half of the verse, it says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. Now, here's the key point to understand about this. For the last three trumpets, trumpets five, six, and seven, you have three woes. So the fifth trumpet is the first woe, the sixth trumpet is the seventh woe, and the, the or, sorry, the first, fifth trumpet is the first woe, sixth trumpet is the second woe, Seventh trumpet is the third woe. Now, I want you to understand that very clearly. Now, when we study these three woes or the last three trumpets, here we see 
God's judgment in the fifth and sixth trumpets, or the first and second woes, on the Eastern Roman Empire. And here we see specific time prophecy. And I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible. But in the fifth trumpet, or the first woe, this is Revelation 9, verses 1 through 12. Verses 5 and verse 10 of Revelation 9 tell us that the fifth trumpet, or the first woe, lasted for five prophetic months or 150 literal years. There's 30 days in a month, so five months is 150. Five times 30 is 150. And when you study history, the Ottoman Turks were the people that God used to judge the Eastern Roman Empire. And they first attacked the Eastern Roman Empire on July 27, 1299. Now, that's a significant date because for the next 150 years, they would attack Eastern Rome. They weren't able to conquer it. But then in 1449, exactly 150 years later, the leader of the Eastern Roman Empire, his name was Diakoses, he he was to ascend to the throne after a family member died, and he refused to take the throne unless he received permission from the Ottomans. And so prophetically speaking, it's understood that's the beginning of the sixth trumpet or the second woe. And if you look in verse 15 of chapter 9, this woe lasts for one hour, one day, one month, and one year. That's 391 years and 15 days exactly. And so if you continue on, you go 150 years, you add 391 years and 15 days, that takes you to August 11, 1840. Now, what's interesting is a couple of years before 1840, Josiah Litch, based on his understanding of the year-day principle, predicted that the Ottoman Empire would fall sometime in the, in the August of 1840, but shortly before, about two weeks before, he said, I think it's going to be August 11, 1840. Now, I'm not going to read the entire quote, but I'm going to give the reference to you. It's found in Great Controversy, page 334 and 335. Ellen White says that this indeed is true, that the sixth trumpet ended on August 11, 1840. And because of the fulfillment of that prophecy, it gave power to the preaching of the second advent message, because William Miller was using the year-day principle to say Jesus is coming in 1843. So here you have, in the first six trumpets, in a brief rundown, and I encourage you to study it again later, you have judgments on Western Rome and Eastern Rome, and the sixth trumpet ends on August 11, 1840. Now, what is the significance, then, of the timing of the ending of the sixth trumpet and the sounding of the seventh trumpet? Now, here's where things get interesting to me. The sixth trumpet ends at the end of Revelation chapter 9. Immediately following Revelation chapter 9, you have Revelation chapter 10, which clearly identifies the rise of the prophetic second advent movement. Revelation 10 clearly identifies the prophetic rise of the second advent movement. And in Revelation 11, verses 1 through 13, we see the concept of the 1260 years, the supremacy of the papacy, the suppression of the scriptures, and we also see the French Revolution. Then after we get through the chapter on the Second Advent Movement, we get through the chapter on the French Revolution and the the reign of the papacy, 
Then finally, in verse 14 of chapter 11, we get to the seventh trumpet. And in verse 14, it says the second woe is past. That's the sixth trumpet. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So what verse 14 of Revelation 11 is telling us is that the sixth trumpet ended on August 11, 1840. And the seventh trumpet is to come quickly thereafter. So sometime shortly, after August 11, 1840, the seventh trumpet will begin to sound. Now let's look at the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the message of the seventh trumpet. Starting in verse 15. Revelation 11 Verse 15, and here it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So as the seventh trumpet sounds, now is the time for Jesus to reign. It's time for him to take the kingdom of this world, and it's going to become his kingdom. Now, moving down, in verse 18, it says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. So notice what happens here. When the seventh trumpet sounds, notice what starts happening. It says, The dead begin to be judged. So as the seventh trumpet sounds, shortly after August 11, 1840, the time of the dead to be judged begins. And then it says, And that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So there is a a reward given to those who fear God's name. Does that sound familiar? Now notice verse 19. Verse 19 tells us exactly where we are in earth's history when the seventh trumpet sounds. When the seventh trumpet sounds, notice what happens in heaven. Verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. What happened in heaven when the seventh trumpet sounded? What do we see in verse 19? We see the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, if you think that Jesus went straight to the most holy place when he ascended, Revelation 4 and 5 should quickly convince you that that's not the case because Revelation 4 and 5 is the inauguration of Christ's high priestly ministry. And there you see the seven candlesticks. That's in the holy place. And when you get to Revelation chapter 11, it talks about measuring the temple of God and the altar. That's the altar of incense in the holy place. So before the seventh trumpet sounds, Jesus is in the holy place. When the seventh trumpet sounds, now we see the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, which tells you that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the final judgment on Rome begins, spiritual Rome. But the question I have, and this was a question I had as I was studying the book of Revelation, why are Revelation 10 and Revelation 11 
in between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Why is the second advent movement identified? Why are the 1260 years and the French Revolution identified? Well, as I've studied, I believe there is a very clear reason why these two chapters exist between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And when you understand this, it will help you understand your prophetic identity. When you understand your prophetic identity, by God's grace, you can live to fulfill the identity that God has given us as a people. Let's look first at Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, we have the temple of God being measured. Notice the courtyard is left out. Jesus has completed his work on the cross, and now he continues that work in the holy place. That's where God's people are in the beginning of Revelation chapter 11. We see that a persecuting power will be trampled underfoot for 40 and two months. This sounds very similar to Daniel 8, where the sanctuary and the host are trodden underfoot. Then we see that the two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth and ashes. These are the Old and the New Testament. So during the 1260 years, the scriptures are suppressed by the papal persecuting power. And we know this from history. The, the, the Church of Rome would not let the common people read the Bible. Only the priests could read and interpret Scripture to them. So the Scripture is clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And then we have the three and a half prophetic days of the French Revolution, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now, have you ever wondered why the French Revolution is identified in Bible prophecy? What's the French Revolution doing in Bible prophecy? I mean, there's been many other political uprisings throughout history. So what makes the French Revolution prophetic and a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Well, let's look at it this way. Revelation chapter 11 shows us what the identity of the papacy is. The identity of the papacy is to persecute God's people and to suppress understanding of the scriptures. And that's clearly seen in scripture. You can see it in Daniel chapter 7 where the little horn wears out the saints of the Most High linked with the 1260-year prophecy. So the identity of the papacy is clearly linked with the 1260 years, the persecution of the saints, and the suppression of scripture. And... That is what links the papacy in the 1260 years to the French Revolution. Here's what happens. The papacy assumes the name of Christ. The pope becomes the vicar of Christ here on this earth. And so people get confused. They're thinking these are Christians. They take the name of Christ and... We see that they persecute those who disagree with them. Throughout the Dark Ages, you read books like Wiley and Daubigny, and you wonder why God allowed the papacy to last for 1260 years. Have you ever wondered why God allowed the papacy to persecute God's people for 1,260 years? Now, here's here's what's interesting. When did the French Revolution happen? The French Revolution as identified in Revelation 11, the part that was licentious and atheistic was from the fall of 1793 to the spring of 1797. 
Now, how does that fit in relationship to the 1260 years? When did when the 1260 years end? 1798. So the French Revolution happens at the very end of papal supremacy, at the very end of the 1260 years. So here's what happens. God allows the papacy to reign for 1260 years on this earth. And through that 1,260 years, the papacy comes into full maturity as a system. It gets better at persecuting. It gets better at torturing. It gets better at suppressing the scripture so that people don't even know what the scripture says. And it was in the country of France... And you can read about this in Great Controversy, page 271. I'm not going to take the time to read the quote. But read the chapter on the Bible and the French Revolution and the Great Controversy. It was in France, of all the countries in Europe, that the papacy had the greatest amount of force. France persecuted the Albigenses. They were the cousins of the Waldenses. They would kill them. They would get rid of them in whatever way they could. They would... Get, they, persecuted and martyred the the Huguenots. It was in France that you had St. Bartholomew's Massacre. and And the Protestant Reformation was completely rejected in the country of France because the papacy maintained its stronghold in that country. So in France, the fruits of the papacy were coming to its most complete and full maturity. And something interesting happened toward the end of the 1260 years. The people in France had such a skewed view of God, they thought that he was a monster that would destroy them and that if they didn't follow what the church said, they would be wiped off the face of the earth. They were scared of God, they hated him, they were sick of him, and they couldn't take it anymore. And it was simply a fruit of the papacy suppressing scripture so that the people didn't know who Jesus really was, how loving he is, how merciful he is. And so France became a model country for the fruits of the papal machinations. And by the end of the 1260 years, the French Revolution happened. Now, why is that in Revelation 11, just before the seventh trumpet sounds. What's the seventh trumpet sounding for? The seventh trumpet is sounding because it's a judgment on spiritual Rome. And what God is telling us here in Revelation chapter 11 is, I am vindicated to begin judging Rome because of the French Revolution. If you want to see what the fruits of Rome is, all you have to look at is the French Revolution. If Rome instills their principles of using the power of the state to persecute those who disagree with them religiously, eventually this will be the fruit of every other country if they have full sway. And so that is the significance of Revelation 11. God is vindicated to sound the seventh trumpet because the French Revolution shows the fruits of the papacy. Now, the other question then is, why is Revelation chapter 10, in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, what's Revelation 10 all about? You have the mighty angel coming down from heaven. He's clothed with a cloud. He has a rainbow above his head. 
just as there's a rainbow above the throne of judgment in Revelation 4 and 5. Here we have a judgment hour message coming down from heaven. And by the way, the mighty angel is Jesus. You can study that. And he has a book open in his hand that's been unsealed. Now, if you understand now that the first six trumpets have taken us to the end of Revelation chapter 9, and it takes us to August 11, 1840, Revelation 10 fits perfectly with the time period of 1840 because it was in 1840 to 1844 that the preaching of the second advent by the Millerites had its greatest power. So the fulfillment of the sixth trumpet was also a fulfillment of the rise of the second advent movement onto this earth's history with the teaching of the second coming by the Millerites. And they used this little book that had been unsealed after the time of the end. That's after 1798. They were using this open book, the book of Daniel, to point to the prophetic time that we are living in, the book of Daniel. And in Revelation 10, we see that one of the messages of prophecy in verse 6 is that there should be time no longer. That's no more prophetic time after the seventh trumpet begins to sound. So if you hear one of your favorite pastors telling you that the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 are literal days to be fulfilled in the future, there's one word for that. It's called heresy. It's error. There is no more prophetic time after 1844. But verse 7 shows us why Revelation chapter 10 is in between the 6th and the 7th trumpet. Revelation chapter 10 verse 7 says, But in the days of the voice of the 7th angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. When the seventh trumpet begins to sound, yes, it is a judgment on Rome, and we've gone through all this prophetic detail. But this is where Christ should be lifted up in prophecy. Because when the seventh trumpet sounds, the the prophetic identity of this second advent movement is for the mystery of God to be finished. And I think most of you know what the mystery of God is. It's in Colossians 1.27. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The prophetic identity of the second advent movement is to have Christ living in us to a full completion. That is our prophetic identity. And I often wonder, you know, how, how about this? Instead of our young people identifying themselves with their favorite basketball players or their favorite movie stars, they said, you know what? I want to be like Jesus. Amen. That's my identity. Not in this all-powerful, I'm going to come out and destroy you type of way, but I want to be like Jesus who gave himself up as a sacrifice here on this earth. That's our identity, the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, Elder Preby read a quote when he was here a couple of weeks ago. This is A.T. Jones in the General Conference in 1893. It's just one quote. Christ is to be in us just as God was in him, and his character is to be in us just as God was in him. It is the cooperation of the divine and the human. 
The mystery of God in you and me. That is the third angel's message. Now, here is the significance. In Revelation chapter 10, we are told that the mystery of God or Christ in you is to be finished in the second advent movement. And at the end of Revelation chapter 10, after they go through the bitter disappointment, God tells them, thou must prophesy again. Which means, that's Revelation 10, 11, which means that the second advent movement has a prophetic message after October 22, 1844. What do you think that prophetic message is? The three angels' messages. Now, We have heard about the three angels' messages all of our lives probably, but the question is, do we live the three angels' messages? Now, we like to talk about the first angel's message and the everlasting gospel, but the everlasting gospel is not just forgiveness of sin, as important as that is. It's also power over sin. And then we can preach fear of God and give glory to him. And now as the seventh trumpet is sounding and as we have a message that says to prophesy again, it makes sense when it says the hour of his judgment is come. Because God is judging Rome and all those who follow. Now if you understand who Rome is, another word for Rome in the book of Revelation is Babylon don't have the time to to prove that at this point but you can study that in revelation 13 the composite beast in revelation 13 is the same as the beast of daniel 7 babylon in the second angel's message is specifically it says babylon is fallen is fallen now we've known that the papacy was fallen for many centuries but when you study the history of the millerite movement the other Christian denominations that rejected the teaching of the Second Advent became part of fallen Babylon after 1844, and they continue to push the teachings of the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness. Now, here's where we need to get our prophetic identity back. Our young people are going to the other churches where there's many God-fearing people that God has called us to call them out of, and they're saying, you know what? There's really no difference between us and the other churches. We're about the same. We believe the same thing. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Our message is to call people out of Babylon because Babylon is fallen. And really, that is the most loving message you could ever give to the people in those other churches. Those people, if they stay in that system, will be lost. They will receive the mark of the beast. We don't want that to happen to them. If we love them, we want them to receive the seal of the living God and to call them into this prophetic movement. And so my burden is for young people and old to realize that we are a prophetic people. We have a prophetic identity. When you study the books of Daniel and Revelation, when you study the seven trumpets, you clearly see from the the fulfilled prophecies of the fifth and sixth trumpets leading us to August 11, 1840, and the seventh trumpet sounding on October 22, 1844, the last trumpet of the seven is sounding. How are we living our lives? Are we living 
our lives thinking Jesus could come in my lifetime and he could come very soon? Or are we thinking, I'm going to finish medical school and residency and all those things and then I'll think about Jesus coming? Jesus wants us to wake up. And what's interesting to me is when you look at Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, one thing I always wondered was, in verse 1, we clearly see that the earth is lightened with the glory of God by the message of the loud cry. But why is the earth lightened with the glory of God by the message that Babylon the Great is fallen is fallen? And you see a repetition of the second angel's message. Well, clearly, when God has given us a prophetic message that will lighten the earth with God's glory, his character, that will show people in those other churches, come out of her, my people. And we have that message to call them out. And so my burden for each one of us is that we will study the books of Daniel and Revelation, that we will discover our prophetic identity. We are, we're not just another group of people. We are God's last day people. And his purpose in raising up the second advent movement was to finish the mystery of God. It was to give us the seal of God in our foreheads. It was to translate us without seeing death. That is our identity. He raised up all the other churches before 1844 to prepare people for death, but not after 1844. After 1844, he raised up the second advent movement to prepare people for translation. And that is our identity. Our purpose in life is to be the 144,000. It's not to have the richest house on the top of the hill in Loma Linda. It's to be translated without seeing death. That is our identity. And when our young people understand that we have the most special message that's ever been entrusted to any group of people on the face of this earth, you will see people, young and old, fired up about the message God has given us. And so I close with a quote that I read at the beginning. Maranatha, page 33. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth... There will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. Let's love the Lord. Let's love his word. May it be our fondest treasure our time with the Lord every day. And may his character shine forth through us. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophetic identity that you've given us as a people. And yet we realize that despite this most wonderful message you've given to us, we are still the Laodicean church, the worst of the seven. So we have nothing to brag about. And we need you more than we've ever needed you. We need Christ to come into our hearts. Just as Jesus says to the Laodicean church, I stand at the door and knock, let me come in. May you come into our hearts. May Christ be in us, the hope of glory. May his character lighten the earth with its glory through us. Forgive us for where we've fallen short and may we have a renewed commitment to surrender everything in our lives to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.